Well, hey there, friend. Welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. This is season six, the very first episode of this brand new season. We wrapped up season five a couple weeks ago. That was our business topic, homestead business, homestead entrepreneurship, super fun. Uh, And then I took a little bit of a break. Well, sort of. You know how breaks for homesteaders go. Um, I just wasn't recording as many podcasts, but I was uh, working on the Soda Fountain Project, and we had a horsemanship clinic here, and I've been going to horse shows and doing all the things around the homestead, you know, that are just part of summer. And now I'm kind of ready to get my head back in the game when it comes to the garden stuff because, you know, we're in that honeymoon season of the garden and things look pretty, but they're not ginormous yet. And I don't have a lot of vegetables coming in, but we all know that's going to change very, very soon. And preservation season tends to kind of hit you like a ton of bricks. It does that to me every year. I mean, I know it's coming. I have all the canning jars. I'm kind of prepared, but then When stuff starts to be ready and needs to be addressed, sometimes I'm a little bit scrambling. So getting my head back in the game, getting the garden ready to go, kind of taking account of what I have and what I need. And that is our focus of this season is is food preservation in general. We're going to do a very, very in-depth look at preserving food. And this is going to apply to you whether you have a big homestead or you are living in a neighborhood and you're just wanting to increase your level of food security, uh, maybe save some money, just quit being so dependent on, you know, grocery stores and industrial food supplies. And there's really no better time to be looking at that as uh, something to improve, I think, in our lives, just because things continue to be a little wonky when it comes to supply chains. I mean, I haven't heard a single person not complaining right now about the price of lumber or the price of fuel or just the price of everything. Everything's going up. We got some inflation stuff happening and um, things are just weird. You know, we have cyber hacking concerns and, you know, not that long ago, I was hearing people on Facebook talk quite a bit about potential beef shortages and things. Just stuff is still a little bit wonky. Um, Maybe not as bad as last year. Depends on who you talk to. But anyway, it's a good time to get your food figured out and maybe get to that point where you don't need to be leaning so heavily on the grocery store and you have more control in what your family is eating and where that food is coming from. And a big piece of that is, of course, the preserving of food. And that is how our ancestors would have secured their food supplies. They didn't have Walmart. They didn't have a grocery store keeping the food for them. That was their responsibility, which creates sometimes more risk, more stress, but also creates a lot more independence. And that's what I'm really ultimately shooting for. So we're going to be talking about canning and freezing and those typical sort of, you know, basic everyday preservation methods, but we're going to take it a lot deeper this season. I've had a lot of episodes on canning and fermenting and things like that, but this, this season we're going to go, uh, deeper. We're going to talk about meat, preserving milk, preserving eggs, really getting in depth on dehydration and fermentation. Like we've never talked about it before answering those questions that maybe you've had that have kept you from, excuse me, kept you from pursuing, not preserving, um, and maybe preserving too, kept you from pursuing some of these methods. Maybe they felt a little out of reach. Maybe they felt mysterious. We're going to pull back the curtain in this season. So you feel empowered and prepared to preserve all the things. And we're going to kick it off in today's episode with a very, very special guest who is actually outside of the homestead world. And you may or may not be familiar with him. I'm guessing you've 
probably come across his YouTube channel. It's very large, very successful YouTube channel. But Jonathan Townsend is a living historian, an expert of historical recipes and colonial food preservation, and a very popular YouTuber who is also part owner of the family-run colonial goods store in Pearson, Indiana, simply known as Townsend's. His fascinating videos show us what it was like to live in the 18th century, specifically from about 1750 to 1840. While John originally created his YouTube channel to offer tutorials that would help his customers know how to use the reproduction pieces they could purchase at his brick and mortar store in Indiana, it's really soared in popularity with folks longing to know more about how people lived, worked, and ate in colonial times. And one thing I have noticed as I have progressed progressed in my homestead journey over the years is that history has really come more alive to me than it ever has before. As I'm starting to, or not starting to, as I have implemented these old-fashioned historical skills, many of them, into our life and started to understand why people did what they did and the value of these things. And so I love reading history, learning history, and talking to John was a huge treat in getting to hear his perspective on these things as someone who literally lives this in real life. So without further ado, here is Jonathan Townsend. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Welcome to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, Jonathan. Super excited to have you. Ah, thank you. So I, I feel like this is a, definitely a different sort of interview, and I'm very excited for this because um, I can't even recall the amount of times on this podcast when I've explained, you know, how we're, we're homesteaders here with what we do here in Wyoming, but we're not historical reenactors. And this is different because you are a historical reenactor and a, a living historian. So I feel like you're going to bring a whole new perspective to this conversation that I haven't had the privilege of, of having before. Okay. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. So could you give everybody a little bit of background on where you live, what you do, all that good stuff before we get started? Uh, we are located in Northern Indiana. And uh, as a family, my father started a business uh, back in the early 70s, supplying items for people that did living history things. So, you know, back then that was right at the, you know, right before the bicentennial, people are excited about the Revolutionary War and things going on with that. Uh, so we, we started making clothing, uh, lighting uh, items, things that people would use for camping in the time period. Uh, when it got to the early 80s or so, we shifted gears and got a little bit more specifically Revolutionary War related. So selling more items items that, that would be uh, specific for that, that the clothing kind of changed a little bit for us. Um, and we adjusted some of our products. Uh, fast 
forward into the the 2000s uh, i took over the company running it in the in the mid 90s and in the 2000s we started the youtube channel um dealing with all things 18th century but a lot of cooking things so uh that's that's kind of what we do Awesome. Do you feel like there has been maybe in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, uh, an, an even more of an increase in interest around these old fashioned ways of doing things? Or has it been pretty much a steady, a steady climb? You know, these things go up and down. Uh, there was, there was a lot of interest in things like homesteading and historical, uh, um, interest in the, in the 1970s and, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows. So I don't know that I would say that it's, you know, more or less, it's really hard to judge because one thing, uh, kind of drops and, and somebody else picks it up. Some, you know, some other little item. Sure. Sure. I'm just curious. I've noticed just with homesteading, you know, it definitely had its heyday in the seventies and it's come back around, especially the last few years. I'm just curious if there was a connection there. Um, people definitely seem, at least with my in my world, way more open and interested to things with history than they did, uh, you know, at least around homesteading than they did prior. So yeah, I, I think it's yeah. I think it's true, especially as we get into this day and age when when there's a lot of technology interest and there there's a reaction to that where people say, wait a minute, you know that maybe that isn't the answer to everything. Hmm. So the, the primary, like as far as your customer base with your store, I mean, you have your YouTube channel, which I'm sure is, a, a, well, I've, I've checked it out. It's an incredible source of education and entertainment for folks, even if they're just like dipping their toe in the water and just seeing what life would be like. But as far as your store goes, are you servicing primarily uh, other reenactors and living his, history folks? Or are these, are you, do you also have customers who are just wanting to bring some of these old fashioned pieces of clothing or tools or bits and pieces into their everyday lives? Well, there's a little bit of everything there, but at least in the, in the, a little bit more distant past, you know, maybe five years ago, uh, our main customers were individual reenactors, uh, historic sites. So places like Williamsburg and, and the basically hundreds and hundreds of historic sites all around the country, um, buying things to, clothe their reenactors or their, you know, the docents and whatnot, or just sort of set dressing. And then we also sell to movies and television also. So uh, we've got a lot of different kinds of customers, but there certainly is a certain quantity of, of folks that are just interested in having a little bit of history or want to connect with the YouTube channel. So boy, it's, it's just about everything. Yeah, very cool. So the topic of this season of the podcast is uh, food preservation. And so I thought this conversation would be awesome if we could talk a little bit about some of these historical methods of food preservation that you have researched and you have um, taken part in. You know, I feel like my audience is pretty familiar with the more modern forms, but I, I am always super fascinated by the history of where we got our modern, modern forms of preservation or how people actually preserve to get themselves through a winter or through a season without fresh food, because that's something obviously we don't have to necessarily deal with as homesteaders. We have the luxury of preserving, but it's not a necessity. Yeah. Food preservation is, 
incredibly important in the 18th century. Although, I mean, truly, it's very important to us today. We just don't really realize it. We don't think about it as we walk through the shelves of a grocery store. It's like, well, everything that's in the middle of the store, uh, that's all preserved in one way or the other, right? It's in a box, it's in a can, it's in a, you know, some it's frozen. It's, well, it's all preserved in one way or the other, except for that, you know, that the, the uh, fresh meat and the, the fresh vegetables and, and, uh, fruit. So everything is is preserved in some way or other. And they're doing all kinds of, of food preservation in the 18th century. And in, if we really kind of dig into it, all of them, almost everything here is similar to what we do today. We, we just don't think about it really hard. Mm-hmm. So what would have been the primary method? Or I mean, maybe not primary is the right word, can you give us some of the, the methods that have been most common in the colonial times? Sure. So let's, I, I wrote down a real quick list here before okay. we started. So here, I, and then the list kept getting longer and longer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, salting, we don't think about salting a lot, but salting is really big in the time period. If there's one that's sort of fallen out of favor of uh, salting, is it pickling is really big and pickling here is not necessarily the kind of fermented pickling, but just straight up pickling. Sometimes it's in salt, sometimes it's in uh, just vinegar. And then we have fermentation and fermenting. Um, Definitely, we've got the things we think about like sauerkraut, but we don't think about these fermented things that are going on inside a sausage necessarily. And we've got the liquids, beer and wine. Uh, Sugar is used a lot in preservation, jams and jellies, candying, Sometimes we have sugar being used in a, a ways that we wouldn't kind of recognize it as much, kind of wet sugar. Um, we just kind of put put uh, fruits in a you know a wet sugar slurry, or we do a dry sugaring where we like might sugar flowers or or uh, items like that. So uh, drying, of course, is uh, a big big method of. Um, preserving all sorts of things in the time period. Uh, Smoking, we've got potting, which is a type of primitive canning technique. Um, Sometimes we'll preserve things in ashes or in liquid lime, so eggs get preserved like that. Some uh, items get preserved in sand, so we might preserve some of our fruits or vegetables or other items in, in sort of a sand. It's really just a kind of a way to keep their their climate, their atmosphere is the same. Um, freezing obviously isn't a big thing in the 18th century, except that some things do keep longer in the winter on purpose. So they're using freezing, but not in the way we would use freezing. Some things are preserved more with alcohol. And then there's a preserving techniques uh, that we don't kind of click with today as much. They'll cook things in pastry and use that as a preservation technique. So meat pies, um, and they'll just kind of stick those back in a semi-controlled environment, like a, a pantry. And they'll that's a way to keep things not a long period of time, but you know, a week or maybe a month as much. Uh, we wouldn't do that today because it doesn't sound very safe. Um, cheese and butter is, is um, preserving milk into the future. Ship's biscuits, where we would bake um, a sort of a very, very dry, hard biscuit for uh, preserving, preserving things in the future. And some spices, 
are used in preservation and they're they're doing some of that and then the odd one that we don't really connect with a lot today which is the preservation technique that they used in making pemmican where they dried uh the the you know bison meat and then they preserved it in its own suet uh, so kind of a 50 50 dried meat and uh, hard, hard fat uh, mixed together, which can last for decades. So lots and lots of food preservation techniques. Yeah. More than I thought as far as variety goes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would what would you be looking at as far as cold storage? I mean, were spring houses a thing, root cellars, what was their primary means if they just to get those temperatures down a little bit? Well, definitely. They're going to be using both of those techniques uh, if they have the, you know, the wherewithal to, to do that. You know, some environments don't allow you to do that. Most people have something like that. So uh, even if it's just a, a small area, you know, in their floor where they would take up, you know, the floorboards and have some, some way of storing something uh, where it's a little bit cooler, but uh, root cellars, as, and I mean, we call it a root cellar, not because it's, you know, you know, like the roots of a tree, but you store roots in your root cellar, right? So, right. you know, all those things like potatoes and carrots, and uh, you might store apples down there, but other things are getting stored in your root cellar. And spring houses are, are very, very common um, for uh, kind of going together with dairy. So you would keep the milk cool in a spring house. You would also have other similar things. You might have a, a niche built into your well that is two or, th you know, halfway down or a little bit above the water level, but an area that's nice and cool. And you would lower things down and put them down in your well to keep them cool also. Interesting. Okay. Um, so the salting always has intrigued me because like you mentioned, it's not something that we do a lot of as far as modern homestead folks. Um, and my question always is when I think about this is where do they get their salt? I mean, is that something that they had to plan ahead as far as when ships would come in and, or going to the stores, you know, on a irregular basis and stocking up, like what was their situation with making sure they had the salt to do this massive forms of curing and preservation? Yeah, they use tremendous quantities of salt and uh, salt, the, the, the creation of salt is its own industry and they, and you can do it m multiple different ways. It depends on where you're at, basically on the planet. You know, some places there are salt deposits that are kind of mined. And a lot of times it's also just being harvested from the sea. That's harder or easier depending on what your climate is like if you're by the sea there are some places that are by the sea that are still pretty dry and so you would uh you'd have these salt pans where the salt water would come in you'd kind of channel it in and then you'd let it dry and you'd harvest the salt that's dried up in this kind of sort of like pool right uh and there are books from the 18th century uh I've in fact got one in my hand right now the art of making common salt and and the author is is selling the idea that they need to, you know, bring more salt industry into uh, Great Britain at the time because they he he thought they should cut down on the amount of salt that they were importing from uh, Spain and Portugal, our big uh, salt makers in the time period. Uh, 
if you don't, if you can't dry it, you know, if you don't have a dry circumstance and you've got to use fuel and, and boil that, that salt water to get the salt out of, out of it in. So there's a, there's certainly the creation of salt um, or the sort of mining and the extraction of salt. There's not as much, there's a salt problem here in North America in that early time period. Uh, the, uh, the British wanted to cut off salt supplies to hurt the the um, the fledgling United States uh, during the war because they knew it was that important to the troops that that they would be able to preserve those those meats. Um, and there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of salt industry in, in North America. There weren't natural salt springs and there wasn't a lot of industry that has was created for uh, extracting salt from seawater, even though you think, you know, it's not that hard, right? But I've got a whole book that tells you how to do it. So it seems strange to yeah. us. It's like, oh, you boil some seawater, how tough can it be? Um, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't that easy in that time period. They They had a lot of, um, they did have to have a lot of forethought, and there were some techniques that were used instead of salting. I was like, okay, we don't have salt now. What are we going to do? Pemmican's one of those kinds of things, or just drying meats when you normally would have salted them. That would have been a lot easier, a lot quicker with salting. Uh, but if you don't have the salt, you're you're going to use one of these other techniques. Okay, that makes sense. So, would you have had like with this book you have? Would there have been communities or individuals who were attempting to create their own salt or is this something that was like like you said it was a little more rare and they were dependent on those imports or was it a little bit of both uh it's there there's um uh, you know through this time period people are looking for solutions for this there are uh, obviously entrepreneurial folks that are you know jumping into this hey there's a great need for it um you know salt and salt extraction is starting to happen as we get into the 19th century. We get, you know, different places as people push west into the United States. They find uh, different places that have salt and they start to extract those uh, like Western New York and, you know, Kentucky and some other places like that where you find, oh, here's a salt spring. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start our own little salt uh, industry right here. Uh, we have the great, interesting example of um, George Washington, who needs to salt lots and lots of fish. He gets, he has a, a fishery uh, right there. He's on the Potomac. Um, there's runs of shad. He needs to salt down thousands and thousands of fish, and he imports his salt, the best kind of salt in the time period, from Portugal, just so he could salt his his shad. So, lots of different things going on there. Importation versus, you know, new uh, as pressures applied to imports and and people can't get that, then people start creating ways of, of making their own salt. Makes sense. Yeah. What about sweeteners? Is, is it similar as far as uh, maybe they were dependent on imports initially and then we were, they would, would they look at, into things like honey and maple syrup as the more refined sugars weren't available? Yeah, so we have um, there's there's this sugar industry going on in the West Indies, uh, down the Caribbean, and there's a tremendous quantity of trade going on between the 13 colonies and and that area, and sugars being imported into um, 
into Boston and Philadelphia and New York, and they're using those. They're refining them sometimes right there. They might turn them into other products right there. Things like rum are being produced, not necessarily in the Caribbean all the time, but sometimes with imported sugar. So we've got sugar coming in, but there is, when you go into the back country, that, you know, the, that sugar uh uh, imports doesn't penetrate very far in. And we've got the great example of um, in the 1830s, William Nolan's um, memoirs talk about how he didn't have any, uh, he didn't have any sugar, like white sugar all through his childhood. They lived on nothing but uh, maple sugar that was boiled or maple syrup that was boiled down into a sugar. And that was a major sort of commodity that's going on here in the in like the Midwest, the backcountry in the time period. Uh, the um, the inventories at Fort Wayne in 1811. One of the things that's being traded by the Native Americans into the trading post, not out, but into the trading post, along with the furs and deer skins is uh, maple sugar. So yeah, that's um, the other kinds of, of sugars are really important. And maple sugar is one of the biggies. You don't hear as much about honey, but you do hear about it. I mean, William Nolan, again, he talks about finding honey trees and, and how, how he would uh, find wild uh, honeycombs in the woods. And uh, he spends a whole chapter almost talking about that. So, yeah. I'm sure that was a huge deal to have. That would be like oh, yeah. coming across treasure to, <laughs> to find sure. out. So they weren't necessarily keeping bees at that point. It was more, if we happen upon a, a hive, great. If not, well, then we won't have honey. Yeah. I mean, beekeeping is going on in Great Britain and probably going on, uh, you know, on the very coast, but um, in, in sort of the backcountry situation, it's more of a, uh, a wild find. Sure. Sure. So I'm intrigued by the pemmican because I've, you know, definitely heard of it before, but never fully explored it. And I'm fascinated you saying it can last decades. Is that because of the combination of, is it dried? And then you said it's encased in fat, the suet. Is that what is allowing it to last so long? Yeah, well, I'm not sure about the, the science of it, but yeah, that's what's going on. You're drying that, drying and smoking at the same time, because I mean, the two kind of go together in this circumstance, but you're drying, smoking the, the, uh, the meat. And, and then you're coming along and using the, the suet part, not, not the muscle fat, but that, you know, that leaf lard kind of really hard, uh, waxy kind of fat from the, from the, the same animal. And, you know, you, you pound that, that dried meat up. So it's all kind of pulverized. So it's got to be that dry. It's got to be in that, you know, that kind of situation where can, you can break it up. And then you mix it so that those particles are completely coated with that suet, which is pretty, pretty, um, it's not going to let air through it. And it's not going to go rancid by itself. And then even in that time period, they would take that same, the hide of the animal that the meat came from and the suet came from, and it was, it was a bag. So it was one, it's sort of like the animal turned inside out and processed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you would use the same hide uh, to create the bag that, that, that would hold all this pemmican. 
Okay. Interesting. And, and that was yeah. primarily they were using bison buffalo or is that also cattle or? There are circumstances where people talk about uh, this happening to other animals, but they're just, it's not, it's not as industrialized. And I don't know if you have enough of the right kinds of fats to do it to, uh, to other animals in a very efficient kind of manner. I think it's probably being done with deer, uh, but probably not a lot else. And sometimes they added other things to the pemmican. They might add berries to that to create a little bit of difference to it, but it doesn't last as long when it, when it has anything else in it. Sure, makes sense. When, whenever I've rendered lard or tallow, I'm always just amazed at how long it lasts just in the yeah. pantry. People yeah, are like, why do you need to freeze it? I'm like, no, it just, right. it's fat. It just it's lasts. <laughs> shelf stable. Yeah, it can last a, a great period of time. And um, that, that was, that was the, um, you talk about the iron ration, the, the last uh, hope they, uh, soldiers, I think it's World War One. they'd have a little can of uh, pemmican and it was, it's like you would eat that last and you knew, say, well, it, this is the last thing I have. I'm good for 48 hours after I eat this. You know, yeah. it's going to give me that. It's not going to be yummy, uh, but it's going to give me uh, energy that, that other things wouldn't give you. Sure. Yeah, all that good fat. Um, definitely in protein. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mined in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond salt last summer and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now, back to our episode. So potted meat, that one intrigues me. Um, you said it's a precursor to canning. Was that their, I mean, I know canning came later. Was that, what did that look like when you're potting meat? So potting meat, um, it's done with, it's generally a rather small, um, I, a small quantity. So you can use it today. The best equivalent would be um, like deviled ham or, you know, those little, well, they call, they're called potted meats even today. So they're in a little can and, and uh, they're generally highly processed meats with a lot of you know, with some little fat on top there. Today, they probably toss in some nitrates and whatever. Um, but in the time period, you would take beef, uh, you might shred it, you'd, you'd bake it, and you'd shred it, and then you would 
put it in your little uh, canning jar, or actually it's a little ceramic dish, and then you would top it up with uh, butter usually. Uh, it's almost always talked about as butter. So you would take um, the ghee, you know, your your uh, clarified butter, and just top that up, and and then you would you would set that aside, and it's good for a month, or two, whatever. You would do other fancy meats too. You might do, you know, uh, lobster, although that's not as fancy in the time period. But uh, salmon and other other kinds of fish in that. You might pot other items you there is even some strange things like potted cheese i'm not sure what was going on with that but basically it's a pre-cooked item you put it in this little pot and then you cover it over with butter sort of like the old-fashioned way of doing jams and jellies and you'd coat over the top with uh wax right 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 okay interesting did they ever do or, or when did canning hit the scene as far as canning as we know it today were they playing around with any sort of, uh, I know they had the pickles, so they had the acid going on, but were they doing any combination of acid and boiling, things like that, or did that come much later? Mm, that's going to come much later into the 19th century. Even the potting, they're not, you would think, so today it's like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take this meat, I'm going to pre-cook it, I'm going to shred it back down. Uh, and uh, what I would do you know, with what we know about what's going on, with why these things are going bad, we'd say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to put that butter on top, we're going to set it back in the oven. And then, you know, that's, that's going to sort of cook it, it's going to kill any bad things. And then that, and then that butter is going to, you know, solidify and protect it. Uh, in the time period, they, 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 they didn't necessarily do that. They would pre-cook those things, they put them in the thing, they'd pour the butter on top, they weren't really as careful about that heat thing, um, knowing that they're, that, that still, you know, some bacteria could get in there after it cooled and before it got the butter on it and the butter wouldn't necessarily kill it. Um, so they, they, they weren't clued in to what was going on with why these things were going bad. And so, you know, their assumptions aren't always, always perfect. And they, that, that whole canning thing with the, uh, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you know, put this in the hot water bath. It's going to kill everything. And, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't have that. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. That kind of brings me to the topic of, of food safety. You know, we talk a lot with, in the homestead community about things like botulism. That's yeah. a big one with the canning and, and, you know, um, I know back then they probably, I don't know if they called it botulism, probably not. They probably just knew that sometimes you got sick from eating food. Sometimes you didn't. What, what were the occurrences of things like that? Was that something that happened a lot? Do we have records of anything like that being a concern or an awareness around that? Not as much as you would think. I mean, I, I mean, I would guess that people are just dropping dead right and left, right? But right. I, that's not really happening. And I'm not sure that their techniques here would be all that. I don't, I haven't studied botulism enough to know um, what what's going on with it that that these techniques don't yeah i mean again i was like you would think like half the people would be dead in the 18th century yeah. but you just don't hear him talking about all that much now maybe people were dying and they didn't connect the two uh people are going to get sick from eating things a lot but they're it's I don't think it's as bad. It's maybe it isn't even as bad as we think it is. I don't know. Um, we hear a lot about, you know, salmonella, and, you know, E. coli, all that kind of good stuff. Maybe they're 
their guts were able to take it more, or maybe they were just used to being, you know, getting sick more often. I don't, I, I wish I had a good answer for that question because yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, and I've never heard any, I don't know what they would have called botulism in the time period. And they probably would have related it to something else and just written it off as something. I guess, I mean, Hey, uh, people in the 18th century, um, in certain places, they just will, you know, in a day or two, they'll just die and they have no idea what's going on. Maybe their appendix burst. I don't know. Or, you know, they got some, you know, bad, you know, fever or something, but it's happening often and they're kind of used to it. Sure. So it's not, yeah, not as alarming as it would be. Yeah. Right. Necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think there's definitely something to their guts were more acclimated to eating the less sterile foods, which I think is a good thing. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just know for, in, in when we have uh, friends over who don't live on a homestead or they live in a more sterile urban environment, like yeah. sometimes I've heard stories of people, they, they have a hard time with the raw milk or certain foods, like the vegetables that haven't been washed with bleach because their bodies are just not used to yeah. it. So I think, yeah. yeah, definitely an element of that happening. Yeah. Your guts are made, are supposed to do more work than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All the, the good immunity for sure. Eat some dirt every once in a while. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fascinating. So the, the cheese I'm, I'm we we have a milk cow and we're in full on milk mode right now. We're getting like six gallons a day. And so I've been a lot of cheese making and you know, all the butter and all the things and, and the hard cheeses have been a challenge. You know, there's just so many variables and so much that can go wrong. And I know that, you know, for folks without refrigeration, like we have today, cheese was there a huge way to preserve the milk for later. And what kind of cheeses would they have been making? Because I, I, you know, I think all my technology and I have my thermometers and my weights and my scales, and I still am messing it up. How did they do this and have actual cheese that they could eat down the road? Because it's, it's hard. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how to answer it. Part of what's going on is that different cheeses are good for different places. So what what your cow is eating and the kind of milk that it gives is going to affect what kind of cheeses are, you know, are easy or hard to make. And there are lots of, there are some texts that talk about, you know, well, this, you know, Cheshire cheese, right? It's like, well, it's only happening here because of the kind of environment or the kinds of things that the, the diet that the cow was eating or the kind of, or even the specific cow, right? So it's like some cows are high, high uh, uh, milk fat cows and the other ones aren't. So you, you, you've got to pick the right cheese for the, the right kind of milk that you've got. Obviously, you know, you got something like sheep, you know, cheese is totally different than cow cheese. So, uh, and and it seems like regionalities are really kind of matter. So different kinds of cheeses came out of different places because of that environment and, and the kinds of um, varieties of, of uh, cattle they had would, would produce one kind of cheese better than another. But I am not a super cheese expert. I only, I mean, we did a one big cheese episode and I just watched it happen. I don't know. I thought it was amazing. I think yeah. cheese is great. Um, now, I am I would have thought that hard cheeses would have, wouldn't have be that difficult. What were your challenges? What, what's going on with hard cheeses that you're having trouble with? There is 
a lot of risk for yeast contamination I'm finding. So if you're baking bread, like, like the super right. fancy cheesemakers will be like, don't bake bread for a week before you right. make your cheese. And I'm like, well, sure. I make sourdough and I do all these things. I, I can't just not bake bread. And I know, you know, a colonial housewife would have been baking bread and doing cheese. She doesn't have the luxury of just not sure. making bread. So, you know, there's yeast contamination. And then, you know, if your temperature is wrong, it doesn't necessarily ruin the cheese, but it will be dry or, or not as edible or it won't store as well, or there'll be mold or, you know, just these different variables. And so, I mean, would a colonial housewife be making cheese or would she be bartering or would there be a cheesemonger or that sort of situation? Well, uh, obviously both things are happening and it could be that uh, there's also the circumstance where the cheese is not being made in the kitchen, right? Mm. So you're you're going to be making the cheese in your dairy, and probably you know keeping all those weird contaminants that that would cause trouble out of that whole situation. So it's almost like your own little you know cheese factory. It's like, well, we're not we're not doing other things in our cheese factory than making cheese, even if it's a tiny little you know circumstance. Uh, so having a dairy that is separate is is probably very important for that you know you, you know you don't want to track in dirt it's got uh, the walls that are are whitewashed with lime so that it's you know more sanitary it's cooler it's you know all those kinds of things going on uh yeah you might press your kitchen into service the other thing is also about food expectations here we are uh you know we are uh we have this choice of going to the grocery store and we've got, you know, 50 different kinds of cheeses we could choose from imported from all over the world or, you know, made in giant factory situations. And we expect our cheeses to be perfectly consistent one time to the next um, and have all these, you know, beautiful characteristics. That isn't that is not true in the 18th century. And I think a lot of our food expectations, well, we would, you know, we would be, we would be uh, sorry, uh, time travelers going back and saying, why isn't, you know, why isn't your X, Y, Z the same way it should be? Um, uh, because they, they put up with things that weren't perfect. Yes. There's great examples are giant sections of the book, of cookbooks where, you know, it talks about something like how to, how to fix your stinking meat. You know, it's like, well, this meat's gone bad. How do we fix that? Well, we're going to add a little bit of this and that, put some extra nutmeg on it and, you know, nobody will notice. Or parts where it talks about fixing your beers and wines. Oh, your beer's all ropey. It's got some kind of weird contamination to it. How are we going to fix that? Well, we're going to try, but people are drinking ropey beer uh, all the time. It's not, you know, thing food that isn't perfect is being consumed all the time and they deal with it. And so, you know, the fact that you can't you know, churn out a, your perfect hard cheese doesn't, doesn't, you know, surprise me at all. It might take someone, you know, five years of, well, I keep changing my technique and until you get it right. Definitely. I think that's a good point that maybe what we expect a meal to look like or a food item to look like is definitely not what they're going to be expecting it to look like. <laughs> Yeah, we we're yeah. spoiled, yes. and and we're we're sort of uh, we're kept from doing those things because we're used to perfection coming in, right? So uh, whether it's um, you know playing music at home, oh, so we're going to compare ourselves to commercial music, and are we going to compare our food to commercial food? 
Uh, we shouldn't. We shouldn't do that at all. We should think, hey, I made this, even if it's, you know, not exactly like the cheese you would you get from the store. This is really, you know, this is good. This is something I made. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So that kind of brings me to my next question. What would have what would it have looked like? You know, I always think about in the fall on our homestead as we're bringing all the food in and I'm working on preserving it. And I'm thinking about it lasting us through the winter. Of course, I have the grocery store to fall back on when, you know, we hit what at least I know homesteaders around here would call the hungry gap. Um, yeah. what, you know, February, March, where the stores and the root cell were running low and there wasn't fresh produce yet. And there were still storms in winter. You know, I always think, what, what would we have done? Because I am not adequately prepared, even though I do a ton of preservation like what would their efforts look like to give them what they need to get through those months, especially, but just even the winter in general? Uh, I, I can't imagine what it would, what it would be like, you know, we, we built the, the, um, the cabin a couple of years ago and we did an episode earlier this year, I think, and it talked about food preservation. And I was thinking about how much, how much room it would take to store all the food you needed to get yourself through. Uh, it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's December. Uh, and I know that, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to get anything real until, you know, March or April. Um, how much food is, how, how much room is it going to take to store the amount of food it takes for a family that you crammed into this cabin? It's like, well, I've got to fit the people. I've got to fit furniture. I got to fit all this food in here. Uh, that, uh, that just as a, as a little mental experiment is very eye opening And, uh, there's issues with, well, isn't it interesting that Lent comes when it does in the year, right? It's coming that time of the year on purpose, um, because, and they, they sort of use that as a, a, people are expecting to not have certain kinds of foods at that time of year. Anyway, um, we have the uh the still need to bring in fresh food even in the middle of winter even if it's hunting which is the one thing we can do pretty well in the winter and is and they're concentrating on doing hunting in the winter time not necessarily because oh it's fun or not because i've got nothing else to do but it's the way to bring in fresh meat uh it lasts longer i can butcher the animal and leave parts of it outside and stay frozen so it's not all about uh, food preservation, but it's certainly got to be um, a, a crazy time in the fall of of preserving all these things that you possibly can and all the ways that you need to preserve them, grains and you know fruits, drying them and sugaring them and um, and and you know butchering time is always that fall time of year, isn't it? This is like oh we're gonna you know you butcher in November, you butcher in December, uh, so that those things preserve in the cold weather, you know, all through that time period. So it I it's it's just hard to imagine how much preservation that they needed to do to survive that that whole you know four or five month time period. Definitely. Yeah. A full-time job and beyond, I think <laughs> just yeah. getting the food ready. Yeah. Um, would, the, would they be eating at that point in time when there wasn't the fresh produce available? Were their meals pretty simple? I would imagine, you know, like maybe a little bit of bread, the meat that they may have hunted that week. Um, or are they doing like full courses? Well, now 
Uh, we got to be careful about who they is, right? Uh, okay, there's sure, just sure. as many kinds of people in the 18th century yeah. as there are today. Um, so, you know, some some well-to-do people in very, very civilized situations are eating things that you would never believe uh, because they're doing, even in the wintertime, especially in Great Britain, probably not so much in uh, North America, but they have hot houses and they're they're bringing things out of season that we would say, what is going on here? Uh, George Washington had had hot houses, um, sort of greenhouses that he's so he's doing some things that maybe out of season. But most people and especially people, you know, we're thinking about in the homesteading situation, backcountry. Yeah, extremely, extremely simple uh, foods and uh, simple eating situations. We have stories about some people eating the same thing over and over again, um, whether it's, you know, grains or, or meats or, or whatever. But they're, they're used to that very monotonous meal situation. Happy to have something to eat, even if it's the same thing every day. Yes. I can, I can see that. Um, of course, you know, we are able to supplement with the store when we get to that point, but I'll go down to the, the our, our storage area at some point, you know, February. And I'm like, well, we have a few shriveled potatoes and we yeah. have some cans of tomatoes. So if this was all we had, we would be eating that for three meals a day. Yeah. And I'm sure the family would have a hard, hard time with that within <laughs> our well, modern spoiledness of what yes, we expect. Yes. Yes. So they, 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 well, I'm sure some of them were spoiled and crummy too, but, um, you know, they more than likely that if they knew the situation and that's, I mean, we, we always know somebody else out there is, you know, having it better off. Right. So we can complain about that. But I, I think most of the time when you read people in the time period, they're pretty happy with, you know, the, the fact that they survived it. They were happy about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Perspective. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jonathan, this has been incredible. And as we kind of wrap up our time together, um, what do you feel like are the biggest lessons that we can learn from living in these historical times? What can we take away from this as far as like food or being prepared or, or things like that into 2021? Um, the, I think if I would, you know, I, I use the sort of a, if there's a will, there's a way, right? So, I mean, in the 18th century context, uh, they did not have the knowledge about what was going on, the underlying foundation of the concepts, something like they had no idea what was going on with beer. With beer. Um, they, you know, yeast completely, you know, what they had no idea how all those bubbles were happening, right? They thought maybe that it was the heat that was pushing the bubbles into the, it's just like hilarious to read what's going on with their thought behind the processes of why these things were working, but they worked and they came up with technique after technique, those things we still use today. They worked in a much more difficult, challenging environment than we do, regardless of, you know, any of the, external circumstances that we have to deal with. Um, we have so many advantages over them in these circumstances with knowledge and with resources, uh, with being able to share information, right? Even this, this thing right here, they didn't have. Um, so, and they were able to do amazing, uh, truly amazing things. Probably what's holding us back is we're too rich, right? We have yes. it too easy. Uh, and 
that uh, we we can do just as amazing things as as uh, they did and 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 better if we uh, if we understand the kind of um, benefits we have and use them to our advantage instead of uh, kind of against us. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. Excellent. So where can folks connect with you? Yeah, if you want to connect with us, the best place is, um, well, the easiest and quickest place is a YouTube channel. If you just search Townsend's or 18th Century Cooking, you'll run onto our channel on YouTube. And we have literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, videos on 18th century cooking and other parts of 18th century life. Uh, so we have a lot of fun over there on the uh, YouTube channel. And uh, if you want to check out our website, it's townsends.us. That's townsend with an S, townsends.us. And that's where you'll find uh, books and music and clothing from the 18th century. Uh, just, just about anything you'd need if you need to step back in time and uh, and do a little fun living. Excellent. Yes, absolutely. So everybody go check check them out. Um, it's really well done. It's just, sorry, that was my dog shaking. If you could hear that, <laughs> if you could. Um, super educational. I know we have a lot of homeschoolers who are also homesteaders. And oh, I yeah. think that it would be an incredible homeschool educational experience to go check out some videos in the store and all that. So. Thank you again, Jonathan. This was so good. I learned a ton. Um, your perspective is super valuable and I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season, my Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, ebooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm going to be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm going to be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up. And we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and to see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look. 